John chapter 14, verses 15 to 31. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in, the, in my Father, in you and me, and I in you. Whomever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. I've been interested in how the messaging about the coronavirus protocols has come because the, the measures are, are pretty radical, especially tonight's uh, starting shelter in place in New York City, where we're not to leave our homes unless it's a crucial uh, necessity. And I've been interested in the messaging because uh, my own thought would be uh, to enforce something like this, I would have expected maybe something a little bit more threatening or something that would have pushed us uh, to think of our own safety. And so I would have thought the messaging would have been, we do not want you to go out because if you go out, you are putting yourself at risk. You can get really sick. You might die. But that hasn't been the message until now. The message may change, but the message has been, we don't want you to go out because if you go out, other people may get sick. Other people might die. There are people that have uh, pre-existing medical conditions that make them vulnerable. There are, um, uh, our system won't be able to, to take this response and therefore anybody with any condition won't get the treatment they need. And what's interesting about that to me is uh, for all of the, the ways that we want to think that human beings are fundamentally good, <laughs> Um, one of the things we know is when we're under pressure, when we get scared, when 
resources get limited, humans respond selfishly. And therefore, um, you would think the messaging would first appeal to that selfish response. We want to make sure that you don't harm yourself, keep yourself safe. Now, it may go that direction, but it's been interesting to me that the encouragement was actually to appeal to the moral instinct that is in human beings. Uh, human beings want to do right. They want to help one another. And, and I've found the messaging has had a certain power, the idea that I'm not just doing this for me, but I'm doing this for the sake of others has helped me. I'll give you one example. When I get on, on the elevator to go up to my office, um, if the message was, now make sure you keep yourself safe, if I was thinking of myself, I would probably be a little bit self-conscious taking out a tissue to press my button to make sure that I don't touch the button. I think if I was thinking, I want to make sure I don't get sick, what I would, I would likely, my thoughts might be along the lines of the self-conscious thinking that I would think, I hope nobody thinks I'm paranoid. <laughs> Or I hope nobody in the elevator wonders, you know, does he think he's better than us or does he think that there's something wrong with us that we're going to get him sick? Uh, and so if I was thinking of preserving myself, I think self-conscious thoughts would come with me. But what's interesting is in the last week or two, when I haven't touched the elevator button with my actual skin, I've been free of those thoughts because my thought hasn't been, I need to make sure I don't get sick. But my thought was I need to act in ways to make sure that everyone is not getting sick. And therefore, if somebody in the elevator were to think, who, who is this guy? It's not that I would be unaffected by it, but I don't know that it would bother me as much because I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for everyone else. And it's interesting the way that works. And this is one of the key things that Jesus tries to get at his, in his teaching, which is to say, Deep down inside, there's a selfish instinct, the self-preservation. The Bible uh, characterizes that as sinful because when push comes to shove, we will act in our own interest against the interest of others. We will compromise our own ideals. We won't love others, but we will think of ourselves. Jesus wants to strike at that. But one of the outcomes of the Christian life, once we, we realize he turns things inside out where we love God and we love others— and don't simply think of ourselves, we find that there's a remarkable freedom. <laughs> we find that actually, um, rather than being so self-absorbed that we experience the whole of life as a conspiracy against us or a very unsafe place, when we're able to think of others who are greater than ourselves, to think of God and his greatness, when we think of uh, the call to love our neighbor, it actually changes our own experience. And so right now, we're, we've been in a sermon series on love, and uh, we're continuing that series. I'm going to talk about love today. And at Emmanuel, we talk about four relationships with God, within ourselves, with others, and with the world. And the topic of love is very appropriate for each of those relationships. How do we restore? How do we renew any of these relationships? Love is important. And yet, the Christian message, which is a message of love, is not always received, it's not always believed, or it doesn't always have its power for a number of reasons. One, because the message, God loves you, we don't understand God. <laughs> so immediately, there are all, all these questions. Is God real? How do I know what God is like? Can I trust him? Maybe we feel that more. I think the thing that we assume is we understand what love is. But Jesus comes to show us that, that we don't understand that either. 
So not only is it difficult when we hear that God loves us to understand God, but we're missing what Jesus is teaching because we also don't understand love as love is as it comes from God. We do have love. There is real love in this world. But there's a quality of love that comes from God that's utterly unique. And that's what Jesus comes to show us and to give to us and to invite us into. And so the power of the Christian message that God loves you really transforms if you grasp it. And this is what we devote ourselves to learning, to thinking, to growing in that. But we're aware that the, the message tra that transforms us, the message God loves us, we're not always aware how important it is for us to love God. And so we're spending a few weeks talking about love of God. And I think it's a very important thing to talk about today and at this time period, because it is crucial that you have confidence that God loves you and is watching over you and caring for you. That's really important. But the relationship between God and humanity is meant to have this, this mutuality, not that we're equals with God. God is greater than us. God's love comes to us, but we are to respond. And that response is actually crucial for us. If we don't respond by loving God, we're going to miss experiencing what it looks like to live this alternate life that Jesus calls us to, a life where we walk within God's love, where God loves us, but we love God. Uh, and therefore, uh, we're looking today at this message Jesus gives in verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so we're spending a couple of weeks thinking, well, what does it mean to love God? And today's installment uh, comes from verse 15 of today's reading. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Uh, how do we love God? Well, one thing that we really need to do is to listen to what God says and trust him and to do it. Uh, and so what we're talking about today is what we keep and what God gives. And that comes from these verses, verses 15 to 17. What we keep, what God gives. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. So that's the paradigm that Jesus presents to us. We keep the commandments. God gives himself to us. And so we're just going to look at those two things today. And so we're going to begin looking at uh, the first bullet point. It's there on the screen. You could also download from our website the whole bulletin that has this outline for you if you wanted to take notes. But we're going to begin by looking at this idea that we keep. Um, how do we love God? Well, one of the ways that we love God is by keeping his commandments. That's verse 15. If you love me, and keep in mind Jesus has been saying, I am the Father of one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The word that I give you is the word of the Father. Read this passage in the surrounding sections. Jesus is saying, I'm coming to lead you to God. So when he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It raises the question for us, well, wh what are his commandments? What is he telling us to do? And, and, and there's a lot that we could say there, multiple sermons worth. But I want to answer that from, from the way that John presents these commandments to us. See, if, if we were looking at Matthew's gospel, we might give a, a, a certain, a different answer or, or a different angle given what we see of Jesus' teaching in Matthew. Matthew's gospel ends in chapter 28 with Jesus saying, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded. So that's his commission to his followers. Go and announce the good news, bring people into the church through baptism, 
but disciple them by teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. Now, in Matthew's gospel, if we were to ask the question, how do we know what Jesus commanded? You can read through the whole gospel, but look at Matthew 5 to 7, where Jesus takes the commandments that were already given in the Old Testament, and he brings out the fullness of their meaning, meaning to say, uh, this is not some external thing, but this really needs to be written on your heart. So it's not enough what you're looking at, but it's enough what's going on in your mind. It's not just what you're saying, but it's what's going on in your heart. And Jesus ends Matthew 5 to 7, where he gives this instruction saying, those who hear my words and do them are like the wise who are ready to withstand what life will bring them. But those who don't hear my words or hear them and don't do them are, are foolish. They're not going to be ready for this world. And so the answer in Matthew could give us a lot of specific things. If you're looking to go on studying this week, I want to love God. I want to, I want to uh, love Jesus by learning his commandments. You could read through various parts of the Bible. But in John, John gives us a big picture. And so I, wa I want to answer the question, how do we keep his commandments with the two big headings that you get from the whole of John? And so this week, if you're thinking, how do I love God? How do I do what Jesus says? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In John's gospel, there are two things. These aren't the only two things, but these are what I think are the two big picture things that are commanded. First, that you love God and believe that the Father sent Jesus. And then secondly, that you love one another. Those two things are the two big pictures which fit with Jesus's response when he's asked, what are the greatest commandments? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, all of the commandments and teachings hang on these. What he's saying is, if you don't love me, but try to keep my commandments, you're going to hate life. You're going to resent me. You're going to find it burdensome. And so this is not just a matter of the new rule book. Jesus says, but if you love me, you will keep them because you trust me because you know my ways are good because your joy would be my joy. And therefore you're going to want to listen to what brings me pleasure just as I listen to your prayers and I care for you. And so uh, this paradigm of loving God and loving neighbor in John, loving God involves believing the message that the father has sent Jesus. And so that's what Jesus says is if you love me and keep my commandments, the father will, come to you. He will show himself to you. And that raises a question. Judas asks a question. This is verse 22. Um, how is it that you will manifest yourself to the world? But now verse 22, there's something important. It says Judas, and in parentheses, not Iscariot. <laughs> Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? A very helpful narrative insertion. Um, if you go back just one chapter, John 13 to 17 is a long section of Jesus's last words at his supper before he is betrayed and goes to the cross. And in John 13, we read, Satan enters Judas Iscariot. And Judas gets up to leave so that while Jesus is telling his disciples, I will be with you and I will love you, Judas is, is with this mob that's gathering to come and seize and crucify Jesus. It's not that Judas that asks this question. <laughs> and that's actually important because um, when we read the Gospels, we find Jesus act, interacting with all sorts of cynics and skeptics and people that are trying to trap him that give you the impression, don't ask any questions. Jesus doesn't want to be challenged. 
But what we find again and again, if you watch the interactions of Jesus with his disciples, they're filled with questions. And so here, Jesus says something so profound. I will be with you. You will see the Father, but the world will not. And if you found yourself in that reading thinking, what on earth is he talking about? Well, then you're in good company. One of the apostles, Judas, not Iscariot, the other Judas. Did you know there was another Judas? There's another Judas among the disciples. Not the betrayer, but Judas, who has spent all this time with Jesus and doesn't want to betray him. Here's this teaching and says, I don't know what you're talking about. How is this going to work? And it's helpful for, for us to hear that Jesus teaches these things that are so deep and profound that even the closest to Jesus don't get it. And yet, Jesus will lead us. He will show us. He will give us the answers. So, so Judas, not Iscariot, in verse 22, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us, but not to the world? And Jesus' response has to do with this relationship. In verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So he says it again. If you love me, you will keep my word. Because those who keep God's word are, are in fellowship. Those who are hearing God, who are walking with God, God will show himself. And so in verse 24, he says that the word you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So God is speaking. Jesus says, I'm coming to make God's way known. So you're already in the presence of what, what God is instructing. Now keep these words and the Father will show you. God is committed to making himself known. And when we're committed to listening and learning and walking, well, then we find that we see differently. And that seems to be the point that Jesus makes and the point that, that I want to make here, where Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. This is about loving Jesus. It's not, these are the rules. If you, if, you, if you break the rules, you'll get punished. If you keep the rules, you'll get rewarded. That's how we naturally think. And it's not that that's in, entirely untrue. That's not the focus. The focus is not that you have to keep the commandments, but you should love me. You should love God. You should understand who I am and what I offer to you and what life with me is like. And therefore, you should listen to me. But we find ourselves thinking, I, you know, I don't see God. Is God real? How do I... How do I do this? How do I believe in God? And now is a time that we're finding that actually this is something we do. This is something we naturally do. We, we believe in things that we don't see. We live radically and our, our perspective is changed by it. What, what, what am I talking about? What is the example? Right now, society, New York City, is making radical changes around something that most of us have not seen, a virus, the coronavirus. Some, some people here do uh, biology lab research. It's possible some of you have actually seen the virus. But in terms of the numbers of people who have, who have looked at this, these live, uh, the live virus you know, under a microscope, very small percentage of the population, but they're experts. They're telling us what they see. And based on their authority, their position, their training, their expertise, they're saying, We've identified this virus. We now see it. We understand it. We're telling you about it because it's dangerous. Now, we do have a lot of medical practitioners uh, in our church, people that are, are uh, physicians, nurses that work within hospitals. Um, those people may not have seen the virus, but some of them are now seeing the effects. They're seeing symptoms. And so they have the testimony that the virus has been identified but they're seeing the symptoms to say, you know, now people are coming in and we see what the virus looks like. Not, not the specific uh, microscopic level, but we're seeing how it manifests itself. 
But the reality is most of us haven't. I haven't seen through the microscope. I have not yet been in the presence of somebody who's actually sick, but I believe it. <laughs> um, and what we're told is it doesn't matter if you believe it or not, because there's some people that don't. There's a conspiracy theory. Uh, this is being made up. This is just paranoia. What we're told is it doesn't matter if you believe it. It's real. And whether or not you believe it, you could be infected or you could spread the infection. And so radical changes, we're being told, do not leave your house because of something that none of us have seen. And yet it's wise. <laughs> I believe that the experts are saying, we understand this and we're concerned what's gonna happen. I believe that the practitioners are saying, we are starting to see this and we're overwhelmed and we need to be ready. Something that we don't see is now shaping how we're making decisions about society, but not just our decisions, but how we're seeing. Because now something that we haven't seen has been introduced because it's scary, it's terrifying. This thing that we have not seen is dangerous. And what that means is most of us are now starting to reinterpret the world differently based on something we believe, something on, that we haven't seen yet we think is true. We're seeing the world differently. So for example, um, your own uh, concerns about your career. Whatever you would have thought if we would have asked you two months ago, what are your current career goals? What's your three to five year plan? However you think. I imagine for most of us, we're rethinking that based on this claim that there's something that we haven't seen. Uh, whether or not it's true at this point, for many of us, our jobs are not going to look the same in three months, six months. We may not have jobs where the industries may, not, may have changed. We don't know. But we're anticipating based on this thing that we haven't seen and believe that our lives will be different you're reseeing your finances differently. So why is the market crashing? Have quarterly earnings showed that companies have not done, their, done a fine job in the last few months? No. There's this thing that we haven't seen that we're told is going to affect everything. And now we're seeing the markets through this lens. We're interpreting in light of this thing that we believe. So humans naturally do this. We hear, we learn, we believe, and then we interpret. Right now, we are interpreting through something terrible, which means what we're feeling, what the feelings that arise from our beliefs, our anxiety, fear, concern, all of the things that you're hearing. What Jesus tells us is there's an unseen reality and God will show it to you, but you have to believe him. And John who writes this, if you read 1 John, also written, I believe, by the same person, 1 John, the letter begins, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, what we touched with our hands, that we proclaim to you. So we have this group of people that say we were there. Jesus appointed us as witness. We are the experts that were in the presence of Christ. And yet church history is littered with people who haven't seen Jesus in the flesh, didn't witness his crucifixion and resurrection, but say, but we're seeing the effects. We're seeing the outworkings that God is, by his spirit, he's opening our minds to understand grace. He's changing hearts Selfish people are becoming loving. Uh, fearful people are gaining confidence. And, and movements are arising where Christians are coming together and, and serving the world. This unseen reality is made visible through its effects. The reason I'm highlighting all of this now is not that it happens to be in the passage that was scheduled for today as I planned out the sermon series months ago. But what we have here, Thomas's question, how will you manifest yourself to us and not to the world? What we're told is Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you things, but you have to trust me. You have to listen. You have to start living out of what I tell you. 
And then you will see differently. You will, you will interpret the world differently. And what he's saying is God has loved you, but now you need to love God. And there's something that changes our own experience. When we love God, we start to see differently. See, when, we, when we're in self-protective, um, self-centered mode, we're filled with the questions that I suspect most of us are asking with some frequency. God, why are you not giving me this? Lord, why is this awful thing happening? Lord, why don't I understand? Those questions are natural to us. We shouldn't be ashamed by it. But once we love God and say, Lord, I'm thinking less about myself, but what could I do for you? All of a sudden, we start to see God's provision, God's care, God's protection. <laughs> and this is really important because Jesus says, this is the big picture interpretive lens. Know the love of God, respond by loving God, and you will see that he will show himself to you. If you are walking with God, you will see his hand at times. Not always, not constant. Christians grapple with confusion with difficult periods, but stick it out. Don't walk away. Listen to God, hear his voice and walk with him, and he will show you things. Why is this important? Because that's the big picture. And these things are not intention. Is it true that there's this unseen virus that could be harmful to us? Or is it true that there's a God who will watch over us and protect us? We're not choosing between them. Both are true. And that's hard for us to understand. And this is what we grapple with through prayer and through faith. But where it's important that both are true is we remember the coronavirus is awful, but it's this moment. When Jesus talks about the Father showing you, it's not this moment. He, he talks about, I will come to you forever. <laughs> He's talking about eternal, which means the big picture interpretive lens allows us both to be wise to say, I believe that this virus is deadly and I'm going to acknowledge that I'm afraid and I don't like what's coming and I need to act in faith. So now I'm seeing through that lens. But unless we have this other lens to say, but the whole of your life is still under the care of God and you need to see that. If you don't see that, you'll be overwhelmed. And so, so the love that God has for us and our love for God helps us to navigate one of two mistakes we can make. The religious mistake, and the religious mistake is to say, if I love God, it doesn't matter if I love people. <laughs> I'm just going to devote myself to singing to God, to worshiping to God, to reading my Bible, but people drive me crazy. And we don't have that option. We're told, if you know God's love, you will respond in love. And so if you love God, you will love people. One of the ways that you love people is by loving God. That's the religious mistake. The secular mistake is to say it's enough to love people. It doesn't matter what I think about God. And so you see the moral impulse being exercised in society as people are saying, you know what? I'm going to rise to being generous. I'm going to care for our neighbors. I'm going to do errands for others. But what Jesus says is, but when, when a true love for God is not present, eventually when the pressures of the world come as in times and seasons they do, that virtuous instinct gets eroded and the most basic instinct, the sinful instinct, the self-preservation instinct kicks in. You can't continue loving your neighbor, as Jesus would say, if you don't love and trust me, because I'm going to lead you in knowing the love of God, and I'm going to lead you in loving your neighbor. And so uh, how do you keep these commandments? One thing is you love God and believe the Father sent Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments and listen to me. That's important because it will help you to navigate this situation 
and every other situation where because of your love for God, you recognize God's care for you. You need to see that, not just now, but always. And so one of the paradigms Jesus has is know the love of the Father. Uh, but here, here's just another thought from John's gospel. How do you keep his commandments? His commandments is that you love one another. And if you go to the previous chapter in John 13, uh, that's what he says in, in um, uh, John 13, um, verse 24, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. So this is actually really important that, that one of the ways that we love God is by keeping his commandment to love other people. And the ultimate illustration for that, of course, comes from John 13, where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Um, something that was so radical and surprising that his, his disciples were embarrassed. What are you doing? You are the one sent from the Father. You are the very ruler. You are the Savior. Why have you taken off your robe and kneeling before us and washing our feet? Well, we're getting a picture. What is the love of God like? That's what Jesus says. This is, this is a different kind of love. God's love is of a different quality. And you're going to see this because I've been sent from God. And now, even though you should be bowing before me and honoring me as a king, I'm bowing before you as if I were your servant. And then Jesus says, and I've left you an example. And the example is that the church would be marked by being a people who washes one another's feet. And Jesus says, I have cleansed you head to toe but he sends his people out on mission. We wear sandals. Uh, we don't, but in the first century, they wore sandals. They would go on unpaved streets. Jesus promises to cleanse them through the sign of baptism, but he sends us out in mission into this real world, this dirty world, in order to love the world as God has loved us. One of the ways that we keep to loving God is by being faithful to love other people. And Jesus says, I have cleansed you. Nobody else can do this for you. But as you come back from being out in the world, you're going to be dirty, discouraged, beat up, bruised. Love one another. If you love me, wash each other's feet. Don't create the church with a bunch of proud people who think they're better than other people. Don't create a hierarchy in the church with who's really important and who's not. But the most important person in the church is a servant. And so everyone needs to show that they believe the commandments of God by loving others and washing the feet of others. Uh, there's a story that I had heard from a pastor named Jim Cimbala. So he's the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle Church, a, a church that got pretty well known for their choir, so they get a lot of Sunday visitors. And, and many years ago, he said on an Easter Sunday, at the last service, he was utterly exhausted all day long, worshiping God, him preaching, teaching. In their service, they always invite people after the service, large numbers, come and we'll pray for you. And he said, by the last service, he was exhausted. And while he was preaching, he saw a man that he assumed was homeless sitting there. He assumed this based on his appearance. And afterwards, they invite people to come and pray. And he said he was sitting on the stage and this man came up to him. And he said before the guy got within 10 feet, he smelled him. And he said the man smelled terribly. This was somebody who had not showered, who had not cleaned himself and smelled terribly. And uh, Pastor Cimbala said, in his tiredness and in his weakness, his thought was, oh, Lord, help me to just do what I need to do with this guy and, and, and finish this up. And so, so when this homeless guy came, he asked him a couple of questions. What's your story? And the guy said, I've been living on the streets for, you know, for how many months or how many years? And so Symbola reached for his back pocket. You know, typically within churches, we're not supposed to have, have the staff and the leadership 
give money out. We want, because the staff and leadership are interacting with so many people, we want to have systems that we can do that. Symbola said he was so tired, he just wanted to help this guy and be done, that he reached for his wallet in order to give him money. And the guy stopped and he said, what are you, what are you doing? And Symbola said, well, I, I know you're coming forward. You're, you're stuck, you need help. And he said, I, I don't want money. I, I want this Jesus who you just proclaimed. And in that moment, the conviction of the spirit for Symbola in his weakness and in his tiredness thought what this guy needed was a few dollars and what Symbola needed was to go away. He was so humbled and ashamed that he started crying that he realized this was not a problematic guy that needed to go away. This was somebody that God was calling. And, and his conviction of what God was saying to him is, Jim, this is what the whole world smells like to me. And yet I sent Jesus into the world to the filthy to clean them. And if you're a pastor, I can't use you if you can't stand to be in the presence of people who smell. And that conviction led to symbol and not simply praying for this guy, but hugging him and inviting him to receive from the church where the guy came on staff and became a staff member at the church, wind up coming to Symbola's house for Christmas and for Easter, wound up being a friend whose life was changed, not because he got a few dollars that day, but because he met Jesus Christ, who transformed him from the inside out and through the love of God's people who heard the command of Jesus and because they loved him, they loved him and his life was changed. And so when Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do you do it? One thing is you look for God. You, you walk through life saying, Lord, how can I believe you and trust the testimony about Jesus? How can I worship and sing to you? But another way is to love God's people. And I know for myself over the years, as, as I've gotten older, I'm not a prosperous person, but at this point, I really have everything I need. I, I don't need anything. So on, a, on, a, on, a, on Christmas, on my birthday, what can you give me? I don't know. But over the years, people have come over and they've given gifts to my children. And it's such a joy to see my children rejoicing when other people are generous to them because I love them. I get more joy if you give to my children than if you give to me. And what we find, how do you love God? Well, worship him, praise him, um, orient your heart towards him. But if you find yourself saying this week, I don't know what to do. How do I keep the commandment to love God? God will be pleased when you love his people. And so I want to encourage you to do that. So that's the first thing we keep. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Here's the last thing I want to talk about, and I'll, I'll be briefer on this because I'm looking at the time. We keep, but God gives. And so what does God give? And what's clear from this passage and from this section, if you read John 13 to 17, God gives himself. That's what Jesus is saying. When Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, why should you trust him? Because God gives himself to you. And one of the distinctions of Christian theology that makes Christianity different from other religions, but makes Christianity hard to understand is we are monotheists. We believe in one God, but we believe in Trinitarian theology that there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you don't find that easy to understand, you're in good company. This is really deep, but we're talking about God if God's love is hard to understand, how much harder is it to understand the nature of God? And yet, if you're interested in seeing whether or not Trinitarian theology is biblical, read John 13 to 17. So even in this passage, 
Jesus speaks about himself as though he's speaking about God. He refers to the Father as though he's speaking about God. He speaks of the Spirit as if he's speaking about God. And the message is, God gives himself to you. So in verse 23, those who keep the commandments of Jesus, my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. If you love me, Jesus says, the Father will come to you. In verse 16, those who keep the commandments, the Father will send the Spirit. He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Jesus says, if you see me and believe me, the Father will come to you and make his home with you. The Spirit will come to be with you forever. And what's striking in this passage is Jesus keeps talking to us, his followers, or those who are considering following him, He is coming to us. He is coming to us. The Father will come. The Spirit will come. And it makes it all the more striking when in verse 28, Jesus says, but I am going away. Why would Jesus say that here? Why would Jesus say this in a context where he understands that he's at the last meal with his disciples, that starting the next day, they will never be with him in the flesh. He is going away. It's because uh, he refers to Satan, the ruler of this world. And Jesus is going to face evil. And so what Jesus is saying is Judas has gone away, but Judas is going to come. (laughs) And he's going to come to betray. And I'm going to go away, but I'm not going to betray you. I'm going to face Judas and the army he brings with him. I'm going to face the ruler of this world. And so in order for the Father to come to you, in order for the Spirit to come to you, you don't need to keep my commandments. I need to go away. And where I am going, you cannot follow. That's what he has told them. Because where he is going, we are not qualified to follow. We have not kept the commandments. We have not earned God's favor. We have been those who have betrayed God. And what Jesus says is, I am going away so that I will be betrayed. So that you who once betrayed God will be so loved by God that he will come and make his home with you forever. And that's going to change this divide. That will keep you from being Orphans, what is the power of that verse in verse 18? I will not leave you as orphans. I will leave you because I will love you and go to the cross. But I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And that, of course, is the second part of verse 28. When he says, I am going away, it's because he's coming back. Jesus goes away to go to the cross so that he could return And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would be with us. And in verse 29, he says, I have now told you this before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. He's announcing before it happens, I'm going to go and I'm going to be crucified. And here's what I'm doing. I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to suffer judgment. But I will bear the penalty of sin so that you who deserve judgment and have betrayed God would be forgiven. This is the nature of God's love. He will give. What will he give you? forgiveness, cleansing, but he gives you those things because he gives you himself. The son will go away, but the son will come back. The father who has not been near will come and make his home in you. The spirit will be sent so that you will not be left as orphans, but he will be with you forever. How important is that during a time of shelter in place, a time of social distancing, a time when we're told as much as you love others and depend on them, you just can't be around them. And we're told that we have a helper, an advocate, a comforter, 
the very spirit of God who's with us. He will not leave us. Others may want to come to you and can't. Others may not want to. But Jesus says, love me. And the Father will be with you. And his presence with you now can be the strength that helps you endure, that will lead you to love God and to love neighbors. So I'm going to leave you with two things. There's, there are so many verses in this passage that if you said for the next month, you're just going to read John 13 to 17 once a day, that would be a great plan. I would encourage that. I'm just going to draw out two things. Verse 27, he says, my peace, I leave you. My peace, I give to you. So this is what we're talking about. What does God give to him? He gives us himself. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. He's talking about something different. What Jesus will give us, the world cannot give us. We cannot earn for ourselves. We cannot give to one another. I am going to leave you, Jesus says, but my peace I will leave with you. That's the way Jesus gives. To give you myself, I will go and I will do for you what suffering requires. But I'm doing this so that I could leave my peace with you. And we need to believe Jesus when he says, believe me, hear me. What do we need to believe? We need to believe that he gives us his peace. And that's not going to be easy during anxious times, but we need to believe it. So in verse 27, hear this word of encouragement. This is Jesus's word for you today. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Why? Because we are people who believe in something we don't see, but something that is true. We've seen the effects of it. And so look for God's provision, God's grace, and God's kindness. You don't need to be afraid if you have his peace. And here's a second encouragement in verse 31. We find that what we desperately need is not just to see that God loves us, but we need to see somebody who loves God. And that's the point of what I'm trying to share for you today. You need to know that God loves you. But to really experience it, you need to love God. And Jesus in verse 31 says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't the most important thing to be that the world would know that I love them? But if you understand what Jesus did, how could you question if he loved you? If he went and was betrayed and suffered death, of course he loves us. We need to know that. But Jesus says, but you need to know something else. I love the Father, because otherwise, would I have done this? Would I have suffered? Would I love you as much as I did if I didn't love the Father? And that's what he gives us this example, that, that no human being has loved God. And we need to see somebody who does. What is it that makes Jesus so compelling, so attractive, we're told that Jesus was filled with God's love. He loved us like we have never been loved, but he loved the Father like nobody has ever loved the Father. And when you grasp that that is helpful to you, it's not just to know that God loves you, but God calls you to love him. When you hear that word and, and do it, when you're faithful to it, you'll find you see the world differently. You'll find you see God's care and provision. You'll find that God's peace sustains you even as you're fighting your fear and anxiety but God will be with us forever. He will not leave us as orphans. He will not abandon us in our vo most vulnerable time. But if God came to be with us and it cost Jesus his own life, he will not leave us with our questions, our fears, or our foolishness.